This episode is sponsored by the Art Legends and History Podcast. We love history. I mean, obviously. And we adore art. Put the two together and you've got Art Legends and History, the podcast that delves into the fascinating lives of artists to give you the full scoop on what went down between brushstrokes. Art Legends and History talks about the styles, lives, and romances of history's most interesting artistic characters, as well as how those things influence the artist's work and evolution. From the drama of women literally fighting over Picasso, to the daring rebellion of Yayoi Kusama, who fled her traditional parents to follow the hallucinations that influence her art. You'll hear all about it on Art Legends in History. Check out Art Legends in History wherever you get your podcasts. Old timey crimey. I'm Christy. I'm Amber. Go ahead. And I'm Joel. <laughs> Joel is our special guest this week. He joined us over on the Patreon for the extra extra. We were talking about cases in which the excuse was the devil made me do it. We had all sorts of fun exorcisms and demons. Uh, Hitler showed up as a demon. <laughs> but does not have nearly as much power as he thinks he does. <laughs> yes. So, yes, it was an absolutely fantastic, fun show. And then also, in our regular weekly bonus episode, Amber just told us about a lesbian murder party. Murder party. <laughs> and it was amazing and really, really fascinating. So if you want to hear stuff like that, you should come on over to the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. And for just five bucks a month, you get five bonus episodes. And they're so much fun. They it's are. well worth it. Yes, Joel is one of our patrons as well. So special guest and special patron. So uh, we're going to talk about some historical true crime here. A very interesting case. But before we get to it, here's what happened. I started researching this case. I got about maybe two bullet points in before I fell down a rabbit hole. Normally, rabbit holes aren't super productive, but every once in a while, you strike gold. And I think, I think I struck gold. So I think I might have an update, kind of, or a theory on another case we did recently. I'm not going to tell you what the case is because I don't want you to get there before I get there. Ah. <laughs> I know. But for our listeners, if you're not caught up, it was episode 133, and the specific portion you'd want to listen to is a section where I'm talking at 58 minutes and 20 seconds. So oh, wow. I got specific. So if you haven't listened to that, go listen to that, and this will make a lot more sense. So, all right. You've heard the phrase, mad as a hatter. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. It has a basis in history. Some people know this, some don't. Uh, mercury was used in hat making from the 1700s to the 1900s. And milliners, which were hat makers, were therefore highly susceptible to mercury poisoning because you're touching something with mercury on it all day long. And some of the symptoms can be like, there's a lot here. 
vomiting, skin rashes, tremors, twitching, excitability. Sometimes your skin turns pink, starts peeling. In the long run, if you have like long-term exposure, um, your kidneys might start suffering. You might have memory and mood issues, lack of coordination, muscle weakness, trouble walking, vision changes, trouble with hearing and speech, permanent brain and kidney dam damage, and dementia and hallucinations. Not great is basically what it is. Doesn't sound that way. No, no. So how did mercury get pulled into the hat making process to begin with? There's a story, and I want to put emphasis on story, because this is probably apocryphal, but it's too good not to include. Uh, many, many hats, most hats were made of felt. And felt was made from camel hair. Usually, they would apply camel urine to the hair in order to get it to turn into felt more quickly and be higher quality. So the highest quality has been pissed on is what you're telling me. Exactly, yes. yes. Oh, okay. So actually, the, the really highest quality has been pissed on by a man with a sexual disease. Oh. <laughs> Ew. So here's what that's all about. How does one get into that line of work? <laughs> well. Not that I'm asking, like, <laughs> because I'm interested, but it's just really interesting. I have VD. Would you like me to pee on that? <laughs> well, yes, pretty much. So it turns out, you know, it's it's the camel hair camel piss thing is great if you live somewhere with camels, but if you're having your camel hair imported, you probably aren't having camel urine imported. So in France, they just tended to use their own urine, the, the hat makers would, when they were making the felt. And they noticed that one felt maker's product was turning out so much better than everybody else's. This is real top-notch stuff. And they found out that he had syphilis, which was commonly treated with mercury. So they were like, hey, let's just bring in the mercury and cut out the middleman. And they did. So all the stuff with mercury got cut out in 1941. Believe it or not, it took that long. Which means that when Jean Otto's mother bought him a doll in Germany that was three feet tall and made of felt, there's a damn good chance that mercury was used on the material. At least it wasn't a piss doll. I mean, it, who knows? <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> so that means that Gene Otto, with his Robert the doll, may have been carrying around a ticking mercury poisoning time bomb for years. Hmm. Stuff just started clicking and falling into place. It was amazing. I actually, I got it from my computer. I was going to take a break and I stopped in the living room and I just stood there as the pieces kind of fell together. I was like, oh, oh my. So, okay, I've got not necessarily pros and cons, but things that the mercury helps explain and things that, you know, maybe are outliers or don't really fall under this theory, count against it, whatever. Gene's irritability. He was kind of pissy sometimes, and he would always blame his tantrums on Robert the doll, which may have been more true than anybody knew if this is the case. So that could be explained. There's also the fact that his parents were known to be abusive towards the servants. Well, if people are going around town talking about how you abuse your servants, maybe a diversion is in order. Oh, our son's doll is trying to kill him. Well... Look at what everybody's paying attention to now, the murderous doll instead of the abusive assholes. So there's that. And the servants would just go along with it because if you contradict the autos, more abuse comes your way. Nobody wants that. 
Then, and we talked about this at length in the episode, there's the long gap of normalcy between when Gene Otto left home and left Robert, and then he went to college, he went to Europe, he went to live in New York City with his wife. During all that time, we have no reports of him being weird. Then when he goes back to Key West and is living with Robert the doll and obsessed with him again, all of a sudden the weirdness comes back because he's back around the source of the mercury. From Healthline, we have this. The best way to treat mercury poisoning is to stop your exposure to the metal. That's what he did. If this is the case. And then this one really clinched it for me. Do you remember what Giannotto died from? No. Parkinson's. Tremors. Which I have right now. <laughs> I don't know why. I'm so excited. I'm like shaking. <laughs> tremors. So maybe it wasn't ever Parkinson's. It was tremors from the mercury poisoning. Yep, yep. And not just the tremors. There's slowness of movement, which can correlate to things like the, you know, muscle weakness, trouble walking, Unsteady walking, coordination, balance issues, those are more Parkinson's. Speech changes, that's also in the list of mercury poisoning. Uh, you might be slurring or have fast speech. Hallucinations, mm -hmm. mental and memory issues. Uh, there are others, and we don't know what all symptoms he had, but I, I did. I'm not trying to cherry pick. I'm just also not trying to give a 10-minute long list of symptoms. I'm trying to give the pertinent ones. Oh. And there's no real test for Parkinson's. Oh. So when they diagnosed him, what they probably would have done was done a battery of tests to rule out other things, talk to him about his symptoms, and then just basically said, okay, well, it's probably Parkinson's. So, yeah, your doctor will look for signs of tremor and muscle rigidity, watch you walk, check your posture and coordination, and look for slowness of movement. It's all right there. When I made that connection, I was just on top of the damn world. So here are some counts against this theory. We don't ever really hear of any physiological effects or symptoms in his childhood when he was spending so much time around Robert the doll. There's pinkish skin from the, the skin exposure, pain in the ex extremities, loss of hair and teeth. Doesn't mean that those symptoms weren't there. You know, the... the Absence of evidence is not telling us one thing or the no, other. And I mean, as a little kid, if you lost his teeth, that's kind of a normal part of being a kid. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. You, there, there's a point in the favor. Okay. <laughs> and, but a lot of these things, if, there, if he was getting physically ill, we would probably have heard about it in the story because that just makes the story of Robert the doll all the more juicy and spooky and weird. Oh, the doll made the kid sick, you know? So that kind of is like, eh, I don't know. And at least in his youth and in the earlier years of his return to Key West, he didn't seem to have the symptoms like tremors that we know of. Probably would have been a little obvious in his artwork. You might have seen even a decline in the quality. So that doesn't explain everything. But, but, point in favor, when you get sick, you don't get all the symptoms. Yes, yes, that's very true. Sometimes you only have some of the symptoms. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you have two and then you get more later. So, I mean, not saying that this wasn't actually the case and he had more symptoms than people realized, but not enough physical symptoms that it would have thrown up red flags. Pinkish skin. He lived in Key West. Yeah. Sunburn. 
They, yeah. didn't, they didn't have sunscreen, or at least if they did, it wasn't very good. Yeah, I mean, so, like, a lot of this stuff was probably just kind of written off as just normal parts of living in Florida, being a child, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, so I uh, I feel like I, I'm, I'm not going to say I solved it. I think you might have. I think there's a high probability that I solved it because... It just matches up so damn well. It really does. And that was the early 1900s when he got the doll. They didn't stop until 1941. At least that's in the U.S. I don't know exactly when they stopped using mercury in Germany. But if it's part of the felting process and the company wanted high-quality dolls, they probably were just going to go with whatever, you know, or just use the materials that they they buy. They might even not have made the, the felt there and, you know, peed all over it or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so... So yeah, that was very very exciting. And it's only a it's it's kind of a derail from our our main topic that we're going to be talking about, but what happened was somebody in our story that we're talking about today was briefly apprenticed to be a milliner. And that's how I fell down the rabbit hole because I was like, "Oh, well, you might want to get out of that line of work." And then I started looking up the mercury stuff just as, as an idea of what symptoms she might have had if she had kept going on that track. And then it just all, it became a whole big thing. (laughs) Down the rabbit hole you go. Down the rabbit hole. Every once in a while, it pays off. Most of the time, it's a giant waste of time. But every once in a while, it makes me feel smart as hell. Well done. So, moving on from that, although, listeners, please, tell us what you think of this theory on our (laughs) social media. Old Tummy Crimey on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, because I am so curious. I just want to hear everybody's opinions and get, you know, kind of crowdsource and gather information and thoughts and theories. It's just so interesting. So anyhow, what we're actually going to be talking about today is Martha Ray and the Earl of Sandwich. Amber, what are your show note titles? Sandwich sluts. <laughs> My show note titles, I was a little behind this week, but uh, if I had thought to put them in there, it would have been uh, Old Men Are Gross. Yes. So I had some moments of just hating certain men in the story. First, we're going to talk about Martha Ray, then move on from there to talk about the Earl of Sandwich. Martha Ray was born in 1746. Now, she was not born into the nobility. She didn't have a title in her family. They were really more like the merchants, the crafts class. Her dad made corsets in Covent Garden. Pretty good occupation for the time. Yeah. I would think. Lots of demand. And that is a neighborhood in London. Her mother worked as a servant, although at least she was in a servant with a a, a noble titled name on the deed to the house. You know, she was in a fancy house. A fancy servant. She was smart and well-liked. For this from a a newspaper, her father was very fond of his pretty, bright-eyed daughter and educated her, many people would say, above her position. At the age of 15, Margaret... They called her Margaret. This whole article, they had some good quotes, but they were off on all the dates and they kept on calling her Margaret and it drove me crazy. Martha was a decidedly attractive girl, fond of reading and music, full of vivacity, with a great liking for all that was bright, artistic, and enjoyable in life. So she sounds like a delightful girl. Yeah. She was smart and well-liked. And when she was in her teens, she was starting out in an apprenticeship with a milliner, hat maker. And then I have, might want to go into a different line, Martha, and also stay away from dolls. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then when she was 17, 1763, she met 
the Earl of Sandwich. He was 45. Yeah. Everybody paused to do the math and then paused to go, ooh. <laughs> and look, I'm staring 40 in the face in a certain number of days, months, weeks, or years. I'm not going to tell you. But that very fact should tell you how <laughs> close I am. There's nothing wrong with 45-year-old men. I just don't think they should be with 17-year-old women. Yeah, and like, I don't even understand, I guess, how there's an attraction there, I guess. I, like, I don't know how to put this. I, I'm not being offensive to any of our young listeners, but as somebody who is creeping up on 40, the idea of being with a 17-year-old is not attractive to me. I'm, I'm, and I'm not by any means defending <laughs> this behavior. But there also is the fact that children grew up much more quickly in those days. So 17 I, in those days I is an adult, that. but it's still not. We know that it's not physically or mentally reached your full capacity as an adult yet. Well, and like the idea of dating somebody the same age as my child mm -hmm. is really like, also, to me. there's a thing where men who are controlling, manipulative. Oh, yeah, you got to train them young then. Exactly. They go for the younger ones because, A, like you said, they're, they're more malleable. And B, they don't have the experience to spot the bullshit and spot the red flags that their older counterparts might. So, you know, a 20-some-year-old woman, a 30-some-year-old woman, she'll see it, you know, most of the time. But a 17-year-old girl, fresh-faced, and you can just easily romance her, sweep her right off her feet. And with, you know, make all the promises and then you have her there to control and then it's too late for her to get out. Mm -hmm. So there is that. <sighs> it's gross. So let's talk about the Earl of Sandwich. He is the fourth Earl of Sandwich. His name is John Montague. He was born November 3rd, 1718. He was the fourth of five children. He was actually the second boy. There are no dates listed for the first boy in the family, Edward, so I'm thinking he might have died young, which left John Montague as the potential heir of the earldom. And by the time he was four, he was actually next in line because his father passed away and his grandfather held the title. So four years old and the earldom is just heading his way. And that would happen really quickly because, as I'm calling him, Grandpa Sandwich, uh, <laughs> died when Montague was 10, and that made him the Earl. 10-year-old Earl. 10-year-old Earl. And his mother, Elizabeth Popham, was out of the picture. She found a new husband the year before Grandpa Sandwich died and was basically like, you know, fend for yourself, kiddo. If you need the servants, they're, uh, they're that away. Oh, and she went off and married her cousin. Yeah. yeah. They had two children together. But since uh, Little Sandwich, that's who he is now, didn't see her pretty much at all, he probably didn't have much contact with them. So very, very much on his own. I'm sure he had people to take care of him, but still very much just left to his own devices. He did stick to the usual noble privilege schedule that men followed in those days. He went to Eton, then to Trinity College, and then did the grand tour around Europe. And this is where they spent like months and months traveling around Europe and becoming cultured. And it just blows my mind that there are people, there are still people who can do that, but, but that there were people who could do that in the days when travel was so much more arduous and time-consuming. It just absolutely blows my mind, and I'm jealous. <laughs> but that, that's also kind of part of what he needs to do, though, because he needs to be cultured. He needs to network with people, because now he's an earl. 
and he's heavily involved in politics. And part of that is traveling and, and networking and, and creating alliances and stuff. So it was kind of a work play adventure. Yeah, there is some training involved there. Yeah, you're, you're very correct about that. So yeah, there's, there's work involved, I guess. I mean, I don't think you could be involved in politics having never been outside of your small town. It would be very difficult to be a successful politician only knowing this. Yes, because you're talking national and international politics. Yeah. Yeah, so interestingly, his father had not followed the same schedule. He'd had to take care of all the family stuff when he was young, as Grandpa Sandwich had some serious mental health issues. And then he... Little Sandwich's father married Liz Popham at age 14. Oh. Then he did the tour at 16, and by the time he was 17, he was commanding a troop of soldiers at Flanders. There you go. So they did grow up fast. Yeah. yeah. My lord. So young Lord Sandwich also hit up some places that weren't on the normal noble kid's schedule. He did some countries that were, at the time, in the Ottoman Empire, Egypt, Turkey, Greece. He got super into Eastern culture and art, and there was definitely kind of a fetishism of that kind of culture going on there. You know, started clubs around it, and some of them definitely had uh, sexual over- and undertones. (laughs) It just made the subtext right into text. Then he starts his actual career. Bunch of government stuff, House of Lords, going into the Admiralty, Military Commission, Diplomacy, Ambassadorship, blah, 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 blah. It's 17 million paragraphs of all of this stuff. And I'm like, no, let's get to the raunch. <laughs> Give me the raunch. I skipped over that entirely. I'm not <laughs> yes. going to lie to you. So some stuff about, uh, just to kind of give you a picture. People knew him when they saw him. Partly due to his rather odd gait. He had a little funny way of walking. An acquaintance saw him on the street and pointed him out to a friend saying... I am sure it is Lord Sandwich, for if you observe, he is walking down both sides of the street at once. I'm picturing him looking a lot like Mayor McCheese. (laughs) Yeah, this is brilliant and I love it. Like Earl of Sandwich, Mayor McCheese, they're like the same person. (laughs) What does that mean, walking down both sides of the street at once? I think he just tended to either have a a very wide-legged gait, almost like he had just spent the past ten years on a horse. (laughs) Or maybe, like, his dick took up so much room that he had to, like, straddle split while he walked. That would explain all the girls he got. (laughs) So, he also once had a Parisian dancing instructor. And when the Earl was very grateful to him for the instruction and offered to hook him up with other, you know, rich people who might need dance lessons back in London, the instructor said, I should take it as a particular favor if your lordship would never tell anyone of whom you learned to dance. <laughs> so he was a good dancer. He was a terrible dancer. Oh. And he, the instructor was like, you know, I don't tell anyone you learned that from me because they're going to think that I'm shit. <laughs> so, mared. We'll just keep that our secret. Don't you worry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But people did have some positive or semi-positive things to say. There's one description of him as a tall, stout man, furrowed and as weatherproofed as any sailor, Joviality marked in every future. Got a kind of jolly way about him. So let's get the sandwich story out of the way. It's the giant Reuben in the room. So I love that. <laughs> I had a Reuben on Friday and still kind of hungry for more. So actually, just a, a couple, a month or two ago, I heard an episode of Our Fake History with uh, Sebastian Major. And it's an episode all about the origin of foods. 
And the link will be in the show notes. I do highly recommend it, especially the story about champagne at the beginning is fantastic. I love it. <laughs> it's wonderful. Even if he acknowledges it's definitely not true. So he tells us that there is a story that Montague basically, Lord Sandwich, invented the sandwich in the mid-1700s because they were doing like a, a, an all-day, all-night gambling session. He wanted a bite to eat, but he didn't want to stop or have to lay down his cards. So he needed something that was really portable, one-handed. You don't need utensils or anything like that. So he's like, servants, give me some beef, put bread on top, bread on the bottom. Boom, done. You got your portability, you got some nice tasty meat between bread, and you're good to go. So this guy wasn't all bad. I mean, he did invent the sandwich. Possibly. The story does say that everybody started saying, I'll have mine in the style of sandwich. And Major tell us that he probably, we don't know for sure, he probably didn't start this, or at the very least, he didn't help proliferate it. Because this story about him being up all night gambling is not particularly flattering for a man in a high-level government position. Well, and I have a note about that. Apparently, contrary to that story, kind of, is that the sandwich of bread and meat named for him was to allow him more time at his desk working, not at the gaming table. But... Again, with a politician, why would you admit you were up all night gambling? Exactly, yes. So there's there's two very polar opposite stories. I think the story came out and he's like, no, 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 no. I, I was working, guys, working. I was not doing those things. And definitely don't tell whatever woman I'm with that I was gambling all night because I told her I was working. So, yeah, there's, there's that. There's also the possibility that he already had kind of drawn some negative light his way you know, he got a little flack for fattening his bank account in exchange for giving his friends cushy positions in the government. You know, as you do, scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Now, so this sandwich story was first seen in a published material in a travel guide written by a Frenchman in 1770 about kind of local customs in London. It's possible it was around even before that, there are mentions of sandwiches in a journal written by an Englishman from 1762. So it's not really mentioned to many other places. So there's not really strong evidence one way or the other. I guess we go with the gambling story because it's more fun. And knowing what we know about some of his activities, it does seem pretty likely. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing was, is he wasn't the first person in history to be like, hey, there's some bread and some meat, maybe some cheese. This could be a good combination. It just seemed to get associated with him. So, he had a mistress for a long while. Her name was Fanny Murray. I don't know if the name Fanny meant what it does Probably now in not. Britain, but <laughs> that'd be a hell of a name to have, especially considering the line of work she went into. She had been orphaned at age 12, then ended up as a mistress to a man 21 years her senior, and then she ended up with celebrated dandy Bo Nash when she was 14 and he was 69. Yeah, I told Jackson that last night. He's like, that's the one time I can't say nice. <laughs> you say 69. I was like, ha gotcha. Yes, it is really gross. And that is, you take the age, the fact that she was orphaned. She had been, I think, selling flowers on the street after being orphaned. There are just so many levels of taking advantage of someone that it's just beyond gross. 
it's really just abhorrent. This launched her into what would eventually become sort of a career as a courtesan. She became mistress to lots of higher-up dudes in British government society, and she was very well known, an essay once said of her. If Fanny Murray chooses to vary the fashion of her apparel, immediately every Lucretia in town takes notice of the change and modestly copies the chaste original. If Fanny shoes the coral center of her snowy orbs, Miss, to outstrip her, orders the stays to be cut an inch or two lower and kindly displays the whole lovely circumference. We're talking about boobs. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> lovely circumference. Mm -hmm. And the coral center of her snowy orbs would be the areola. And uh, uh, th this particular quote did come from Wikipedia. That was fun because coral center of her snowy orbs was a link. And I unthinkingly went and hovered over it, and giant picture of an areola popped up. <laughs> Outstanding. Yes, I was like, oh, okay. That's, uh, I should have guessed that and been smarter about where I put my mouse. At least uh, that wasn't your rabbit go, hole. I was going to say, that's my rabbit hole right there. I've gotten lost. <laughs> Amber goes down the areola rabbit hole. Yep. What did you do? How, how, much, how much research did you do? Uh, three hours spent looking at breasts. Um, it, was, it was lovely. I have no information. There was one picture of Fanny Murray that basically was like her dress went to right about the very underboob area. It's like, well, probably can't post that on the Facebook. So she would just walk around with her boobies hanging out. I mean, that might have been just for the portrait, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they there was a thing where if she showed, you know, she showed the coral center of her snowy orbs, as in her dress is cut, like, a little bit below the areola, or at least enough to allow a peak if she bends a little bit, then other women will be like, okay, let's take it a couple inches lower. I gotta outdo her. I gotta outdo Fanny. I, got, I gotta have my nipples out, guys. <laughs> I, gotta, I gotta outdo Fanny with my areolas. <laughs> I mean, I think this is a fashion trend that should come back. <laughs> Dresses with no tops. Yeah. You can cover my stomach. Just leave the titties hanging free. <laughs> yes. You can see what I'm excited. Look, girl boner. <laughs> oh, Sorry. <goodness. laughs> no, that was good. That was good. So, Fanny was also in attendance at some meetings of the Hellfire Club, which Sandwich was a part of. We did talk more about the Hellfire Club, if you're interested. I believe it's in episode 85 about the Brown Lady of Raynham. So that would have been another one of our Spooky Ween stories last year. The Brown Lady of Raynham, I think her husband was a member of one of the Hellfire Clubs. There were a couple of them. But I think he was a member of this particular one that also included the Earl of Sandwich, if I remember correctly. So this is basically a bunch of rich douches getting together to act all edgy because they feel like it, I guess. One of the first places they met was the George and Vulture Inn. thought that was a pretty good one. George like and it. Vulture? George and Vulture. I'd drink there. Yeah, yeah, so would I. They would play pranks, and they did, quote, obscene parodies of religious rites. Honestly, Wikipedia had a delightful article. I don't usually use them as much as I did today, but there were so many different side roads I had to go down, like with the Hellfire Club and with Fanny, that I was just, we'll just use this. And this is just a wonderful line. Mock rituals, items of a pornographic nature, much drinking, wenching, and banqueting. Sounds like a party. Yeah. Love me some wenching. And banqueting. You got food and boobs and uh, it's a good time. Put them all together. Good time to be had by all. Let's get drunk, have some food, have some boobs, play <laughs> some pranks. Yeah. Do some sacrilegious rites. Let's do crimes. <laughs> yes. 
So there would be nuns at these gatherings. Who the fuck invited nuns? They're sex workers. But because they have this whole sacrilegious thing going on, they call the sex workers nuns as another mockery of religion. Oh! I, I just figured, like, Sister Hazel was invited. <laughs> Sister Hazel likes to get freaky. Nuns with the cutout boobs. <laughs> oh, Lord, next to your Halloween costume. So, Fanny would be a nun at these Hellfire Club meetings. Just a fun note that I like, okay? The secretary and steward of the club had his will decree that when he died, his heart was to be put into an urn in the home where the very first meeting had been held. And they don't mention who did this, but sometimes someone would just take it out of the urn and show it to visitors. Like, oh yeah, here's this dude's heart. He never even lived here, I don't think, so... He liked to party here, though. Yeah, well, after it was stolen in 1829, they couldn't do that anymore. Why? Why would you steal the heart? I don't know. Like, what are you doing with this? Well, you're going there to drink and play pranks. Uh, one of the pranks was stealing the heart. <laughs> Maybe. Somebody, yeah, somebody probably took it a little too far. They woke up the next morning. They're like, what the fuck is this? I, I don't even remember taking this. All right, whatever. Throw in the trash. I did that with a pool ball once. <laughs> there was also a thing about King George, I believe it was the fourth, at one point gifting the club with a, a small box, like a gilt box containing uh, the pubic hair of one of his mistresses. Oh, I remember that. And I'm like, George... That is definite serial killer behavior. It's not even a good gift. <laughs> it's not even a good gift. You're like, oh, what's in this box? Oh, oh. pubes. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's just not a good gift. <sighs> if you're looking to buy me something for Christmas, that's not what I'm after. And you're, if it, You're getting a box of pubes for Christmas. <laughs> that's what's going to happen now. Oh, white elephant's going to be interesting this year. <laughs> and if I get a gift from a king, I'm hoping for a lot better than pubes. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like... I'm just saying... <laughs> I, I feel like that was a gift to rub it in of, like, <laughs> I made her shave. <laughs> it wasn't even the king's pubes. It's like, maybe a box of king, kingly pubes would be okay. I think probably he thought about that, and he's like, nah, I don't want to make it weird. So, uh, hey, uh, Mistress Girl over there, I don't remember your name. Come on over. <laughs> Bring that razor. We got some work to do. I have some gift giving to do. Somebody that gives worse gifts than my husband. Amazing. <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> But a man's got to settle down and marry. So in 1741, Lord Sandwich did just that. To 23-year-old Dorothy Fane, they were actually close in age. They weren't like they were like a, a year or less apart. He was still doing the Hellfire stuff, probably still prancing around with Fanny or some other mistress. Fanny's the one we have documentation of. We don't know whether or not there were others. I'm just guessing, yes. Yeah, probably. Yeah. They had one son together who survived and three other children who died young or relatively so at 7, 13, and 24. Her mental health went downhill pretty badly. They would end up separating in the 1750s but still remain married. And he set her up pretty nicely uh, over in Windsor Castle where she lived in an apartment with her sister. So that's, that's not bad. <laughs> there are worse ways to get separated, I suppose. Yeah. In 1767, a writ was drawn up to look into her mental health, officially called, and I had never heard of this before, De Lunatico Inquirendo, which is a basically inquiry as to whether you're a lunatic. Their phrasing, not mine. And it was done by the Court of Chancery. 
Ooh, I didn't know. Which I enjoyed very much. That is enjoyable. As enjoyable as, say, uh, inquirendo lunatico can be. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we're going to do this. That's the Court of Chancery. We have this dice. <laughs> Let's roll it. Not so. All right. <laughs> winner, winner, chicken dinner. Well, uh, the dice were probably heavily weighted one way or the other because she was a woman. So yes. just right out the gate, they can just take this form out, this De Lunatico Inquirendo, and just rubber stamp it. Yes, because they see the F on there for her sex. Well, yeah. I mean, it was a six-sided dice. Two of them were insane. Two of them were witch. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then the other side was throw her into the street. So, I mean. It was stacked against her. It's hard to win. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at least she didn't get witch. That yeah, would have been way true. worse. That's true. Yeah. I didn't have very much about what happened to her beyond there. You know, she lived for several more years, but I didn't have whether she was institutionalized. Well, she was declared a ward of the court. Okay, all right. Which meant she had to be in permanent seclusion, and she was unable to marry or divorce. Uh Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah, so after they declared her a lunatic or whatever wording they, they wanted to use, They're basically like, okay, well, we're going to set you up. You live here. We control you. And you can't remarry or divorce or go anywhere else. Shades of a conservatorship, honestly. Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That is very interesting because some articles kind of make a big deal about the fact that Lord Sandwich wouldn't divorce his wife for Martha Ray. He couldn't. He couldn't, yeah. That's interesting because they got together in 1763, Sandwich and Martha, and it was in 1767 when they did the De Lunatico Incorrendo. So it would have probably been soon after that that she was deemed basically too incompetent to divorce. Yeah. Yeah, there you have it. That's, I mean, it's not like I'm giving him super credit, but he's handling the situation as best as he could. Well, and I did see an article where he declared that Martha was under his protection. So I think because he couldn't really marry her, he was basically like, well, I'm taking her in as my ward and I will protect her. Mm-hmm. And that was as close as he could get yeah. to declaring that. It definitely cast him in a better light knowing that he, he didn't have any choice in the matter, you know, as far as marrying her. And he, I, I do think that despite all the social stigma that came with it, there's a chance he would have if he could have. I think he would have, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah. I really do. Like, I feel like he really, really, really did care about Martha. So Martha was a, a beautiful singer, from what I understand. And when she first came to him, he set her up with music masters to come and help teach her her passion. He even sent her to France to learn both the singing and the harpsichord. Yeah. And also, you know, the, all the etiquette and how to be a lady. I think he really did. Like, I don't think he necessarily did it for his own benefit, even though he also loved music. I think that he really did care about her and wanted to help guide her passions. And he saw this talent in her as well and wanted to help it flourish. Yeah. I'm trying not to shortchange him too much just because, you know, he's kind of veering on the side of Dirty Old Man. And yeah, this did work out well for both of them pretty much. But even with all of her training that he helped her get, he would only allow her to perform in private. She was not allowed to become a lady of the stage. That would be too disrespectful. And I think he also had a little bit of a jealous streak. Maybe, but I actually had in my notes that he did allow her to do two seasons. Oh, really? Interesting. Okay. But comes with... A little catch. So she sang in two seasons of oratorios sponsored by him. Oh. So he basically paid for these special seasons of, of whatever. 
and would let her sing, but he had funded it, he was in charge of it, and okay, honey, you can sing. Okay, you're done now, come back. And he but, could probably had some control over the audience. Yeah, I'm sure he did. Well, and that way it's sort of still in his head is still a private performance. Yeah, so I, I'm sure they were actually smaller things, not on a full stage or anything. But basically the same people that would come to his dinner parties could come to see his wife perform. Yes, just in a different environment. And she did really want to learn. She wanted to read and become what the papers called a charming companion so that she could try to be on the same level as his friends. And really, this wasn't hush-hush. This was public knowledge. He rocked up to the family home, which is called Hitchingbrook and is located in Huntingdonshire. Rolls off the tongue. Right off it. Uh, It's about 70 miles north of London. And he had her on his arm and moved her right in. She entertained his friends and colleagues as a wife would, although sources very wildly as to whether there was acceptance on the part of the friends or not. Some people said that his friends just basically considered her like his wife, and some people say that they froze her out. It's it's hard to know. It probably varied. Oh, it did. It did. I actually have two different descriptions of her, and I think this is really a good testament to that. So one description is, not what we would call elegant, but which would pass under the denomination of pretty. Her height was about five feet five inches. She was fresh-colored, and had a perpetual smile on her countenance, which rendered her agreeable to every beholder. And so it's kind of like, she was all right. She was nice, I guess. Yeah, that's kind of damning with faint praise there. Yeah. But then somebody else described her as a second Cleopatra, a woman of thousands, and capable of producing those effects on the heart which the poets talk so much of and which we are apt to think chimerical. Wow, yeah, those are very different descriptions. Well, the second one, I've often been described the same way. Second Cleopatra? Yeah. I've always thought of you as a third Cleopatra. I know, I get it all the time. (laughs) But yes, we have different views on her. So some people are like, I'm not impressed. She's not that friggin' dainty. And other people are like, oh my God, I love her. She's perfect in every way. So it's really, I I think his friends were probably completely divided on it. So half of his friends are like, she's a perfect wife. And the other half are like, who's this bitch? (laughs) (laughs) Wow, those are fantastic quotes. They really demonstrate something. I do want to note, in Huntingdonshire, where Hinchingbrook is, there is a bar called The Cock. And And that's where we'll be. Again, I would drink there. (laughs) Where are you at? The Cock. (laughs) (laughs) So she had nine children, of which five survived. And she also, if she didn't feel like hanging around Hinchingbrook, she could go to a place he got for her in Westminster. There are also some sources that say he was put up in in a place by the Admiralty or had a place in town from the Admiralty. There are also some sources that say that she could go there. So I'm not sure if they're the same place or if that's two different places. And she could use the allowance he gave her. He also gave her father an allowance of 50 pounds a year, which is about 6000 in uh, U.S. dollars today. So it's, uh, it's not really a shock that he's in debt a lot. Yeah, well, in my notes, I have her allowance was 300 pounds a year. Okay, all right. So that's six times six. That's 36000 about in U.S. dollars, if I'm doing the math right. Which is more than some teachers make. So Yeah. And... <laughs> 
living expenses taken care of as far as roof over her head, probably buying her clothes all the time. Maybe she spent some of the allowance on clothes, but maybe not. I think she spent a lot of it at the cock. <laughs> I know I would have. Just dumping all her money at the cock. Dad's a corset maker, so there's part of your uh, yeah. wardrobe taken care of. So they lived like this for a long while, but she was always feeling like as secure as she was, she also had a source of insecurity. He is 24 years older than her. He's getting a little older every year. She's getting a little older. But with that age gap, everything could vanish in a split second if he died. She would have no roof over her head and she would have five children to care for with no income. He couldn't get a divorce, as we mentioned. So she just kind of kept on keeping on. And occasionally she would tell him, you know, I could always head off to the theater and have a kind of secure career there with all of my talents and training. And he was like, no, mm -mm. (laughs) don't do that. He did keep a, a, a tight grip on her in that way. But yeah, this is the state of affairs. In 1775, they're kind of living together in this uncomfortable comfort because there's always that idea in the back of your head that it could end tomorrow. And they'd been living that way for a dozen years. And then along comes a man named James Hackman. This episode is sponsored by How to See a Man About a Dog, Collected Writings. Are you bored of TV? Like drugs, but can't afford them? Still paying alimony. Read the instant cult classic, How to See a Man About a Dog, Collected Writings. It's surreal. It's strange. It's How to See a Man About a Dog by breakout surrealist author Samuel Knox. How to See a Man About a Dog combines darkly comic short stories, powerful poems, and pulp fiction prose to create a heartbreaking and hilarious journey that readers will not soon forget. Get your dose of surreal prose and poetry with this dark comedy collection. Ebook available on Kindle Unlimited. Print copies are available on Amazon, the Book Depository, and more. Or, as the Manchester Weekly Times put it, then the great stage manager Fate arranged another meeting which was to bring all these pleasant arrangements down like a house of cards. There's a lot of metaphors. Yeah. (laughs) They're just pouring one metaphor into the glass, and then they're like, let's grab another metaphor off the shelf and pour that baby in and just stir it up. And then it's like when you can you go to the soda fountain and you just pour all the sodas in. (laughs) (laughs) That's what they're doing. So he was a captain in the army out trying to drum up recruits. And when he came to Huntingdonshire, he was 23 years old. He'd been in the army for about four years, having made it to captain. There's not the best descriptions of him. He had tried to go into trade as a mercer, which is, as far as I can tell, somebody who imports or sells silk. But it was said he had too much of a temper and not enough patience, which, if you're doing anything in retail... (laughs) (laughs) Being a hothead, probably not going to help you out. Yeah, so... Can't go to work with spicy armpits every day. (laughs) Spicy armpits, my gosh. (laughs) That's a new one on me and I like it. His parents, realizing that this, you know, wasn't going to work out for him, they bought him a commission in the military. You buy everything by this. He got invited to Hinchingbrook by Lord Sandwich. Apparently it was just kind of the thing. If an officer is in your town, you know, and you're the, the, the big house in town, you invite them over, hospitality and everything. And then... He meets Martha. 
She was 29 then. It's said that they became fast friends, but he pretty quickly caught some intense feelings. You can't catch feelings, guys. No, no. We're headed down a bad road. He called her a lady of an elegant person, great sweetness of manners, and of a remarkable judgment and execution in vocal and instrumental music. I'm like, is this a newspaper review? (laughs) Kind of, yeah. Yeah. They may have started up something. It may have gotten semi-serious. We don't really know anything for sure. It seems like he did take a shot and propose for the first of several times. But she said, I could never marry a knapsack. I try. The knapsack, every definition of it is just knapsack. You know, a bag (laughs) that goes on your shoulders. And, but I'm thinking soldiers carried knapsacks, yeah. so maybe derogatory term for soldiers. That's what I was thinking. It, it was, actually. I have somewhere in my notes about that, but it was because he was a soldier. You had uh, more, more patience than I did going through those search results. I was like, British slang knapsack. No, it's the same as everywhere else. It's a freaking backpack. Then he was shipped off to Ireland, and apparently he started thinking, well, she won't marry a soldier. Maybe she'll marry somebody with a different profession. Maybe she'll marry me if I become a reverend? Yeah. (laughs) What's happening here? This is weird. Seems like the wrong reason to become a reverend. For a lady? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But he left the army in 1777, resigned his commission, set off to join the clergy. The Church of England ordained him as a deacon and then a priest in 1779. There are later implications in the press that maybe Martha had something to do with kind of greasing the wheels to make that happen a lot quicker, but we don't know. We have no idea. She might not have even really realized he was doing it. Yeah, I mean, there is a version of the story that basically is Martha was an innocent party to all of this, Mm -hmm. and Hackman was basically stalking her and repeatedly asking her to marry him, and she kept politely refusing as much as she could. So, but I mean, it's kind of lost the time as to what the true nature of their relationship was. Yeah, it really is. That That's really the huge mystery of all this is what was their relationship? Well, one thing we do know, absolutely know, is that she did refuse his marriage proposals on more than one occasion. Yes, yes. She definitely was not planning on marrying him. And that tells me the stalking thing is probably the more likely story, because if you're just lovers... Wouldn't you want to be with that person? But then there are some accounts, and I'm kind of, I guess, devil's advocating here because I I think that it was a stalker situation personally, and she had no choice but to be nice and polite because women were forced into it even far more than we are today. I mean, 300 years ago. And so I'm, I'm pretty convinced it's that. But there are some sources that they take the fact that he got a rectorship in a town called Wyveden, which uh, he'd probably never even been there or seen it, maybe didn't even know it existed until the church was like, we're going to send you that away. It's 82 miles from Huntingdonshire, 135 miles from London. And this is when he's like, I'm going to propose now. And part of the reason she might have said no, according to some of these articles, is that she's looking at like, okay, I got this cushy life here. Maybe it's not always secure, but it's cushy. I've got five children that I've got to take care of. They they need money. How are we all going to live on a rector's salary in this teeny tiny little town where I don't know anyone and I've never even been to? 
Like there are some that say that the, the, the state of her current life definitely seemed, even if she loved him, definitely seemed preferable to going to some town she'd never heard of and didn't know anything about and living off of a preacher's salary. Yeah, exactly. So he's supposed to go there. But of course he goes and proposes to Martha. He's like, well, I have an income. And she's like, eh, eh, no. And he even was certain. This is, this is a new level here. He's certain that the Earl of Sandwich, Martha's longtime lover of, at this point, 14 years, will be all in with this idea. I don't think Mayor McCheese is going to be down. I don't think Mayor McCheese is going to give his blessing for this union. No. Yeah. He's like, well, I'm a priest. How could he say no? God <laughs> wants this to happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but Martha can say no, and she did. So he shoots his shot, she shoots him down, and he is more obsessed than ever. So he tries to get a note to her. And it's just like, please, just please see me for five minutes so I can propose again. <laughs> because surely if I just take the same action over and over and over and over, I'll get a different result one of these days. And she just flat out says no. There were some sources that said that she sent him a polite note. There were some sources that said that she just returned the letter without even opening it, which I call leaving on unread. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I really feel like if this were current day, Hackman is the nice guy that's in everyone's DMs all the time. And then as soon as you, like, shoot him down, he's like, you bitch, want to go out tomorrow? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or or if you don't respond for five minutes, because God forbid you not, like, have your phone attached to you when you're in the shower or something, and they freak out, and they're like, oh, how dare you ignore me, bitch? We just said hi an hour ago. <laughs> I don't owe you shit. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes, he definitely seems there's there's an entitlement there and just You this, will be mine. I went and got this new job with a steady paycheck for you. Now marry me. No? I'll ask again tomorrow. Exactly. Yes. And she's just going to keep on going and going and going or not. That is the state of things uh, on April 7th, 1779. He goes out looking for her stalking her. And when he sees her going to the theater with friends, she was definitely with one female friend. There's questions as to whether there were male friends there or not. It doesn't really matter because she has the right. Well, yeah, she does have the right. She went with her companion, the Italian singer, Katerina Galli. And while there, the two women were uh, joined by a number of male admirers who would come and chat and flirt with them during the show. Now, as they were leaving the show, there was a large crowd, Mm -hmm. and the women were getting jostled. So a friend who knew them saw this and went to offer his arm to help the girls from being jostled about in the crowd. And this is John McNamara. Yes. He's an, an attorney from Ireland and just, just being a nice nice gentleman. Yes. So it was just the two women, but they were constantly surrounded by different male admirers. You're in a social situation and yeah. you're, you're two pretty talented, kind of well-off women. It's going to happen, yeah. you know? And, and he, he can't keep her closed off in a closet in Wyveden, <laughs> whether he wants to or not. Well, and actually Sandwich was meant to be there that night, but he was stuck at work. Yeah, yeah, he was at the Admiralty. He and was gambling. They were seeing a three-act ballad opera, Love in a Village. Would you like Wikipedia's delightful synopsis of the plot? Oh. Please. Yes. The heroine of the story, Rosetta, is fearful of her impending marriage to a man she has never met. 
Worried that she will be miserable, she runs away from home and acquires a position as a chambermaid in the house of Justice Woodcock. <laughs> Meanwhile, the son of Sir William Meadows, Thomas, is in an equivalent situation. He also avoids his impending marriage by posing as a gardener in the Justice's household. Rosetta and Thomas meet and soon fall in love. However, both of their families are determined to make them marry their intended future spouses. They, just, were, they were intended to each other. Exactly. Yeah. Just as all seems hopeless, Sir William arrives and reveals that the young lovers have in fact been betrothed to each other the whole time. This is some real good 90s rom-com material. I was going to say, that's so predictable. Like, <laughs> I didn't see where it was going. Gwyneth Paltrow was definitely in this. <laughs> I hope with just her head in a box. That's not that kind of movie. So. It could be. So they're watching this very predictable, but maybe not for the time, but now very predictable, a little like rom-com three-act ballad opera. Rock opera! Rock opera. And Hackman sees her and freaks out. He went to his sister and brother-in-law's house. He'd had dinner there, and he did a couple things. He wrote two letters. One of them was a suicide note to his brother-in-law. Just, just forget your sister, I guess. You know, I mean, she's, she's only... Your sister, yeah. Yeah. And then he wrote another letter, which was a love letter to his beloved Martha. And then he grabbed two pistols, loaded them, and set out back towards the theater. As Amber said, we have the ladies coming out of the packed theater, the crowd, the attorney. He sees them, and he offers his help. They're trying to get to their coach. He lets her companion, Golly, into the coach. And we had this eyewitness account of a fruit seller named Mary Anderson. I was standing at the post. Just as the play broke up, I saw two ladies and a gentleman coming out of the playhouse. A gentleman in black followed them. Lady Sandwich's coach was called. When the carriage came up, the gentleman handed the other lady into the carriage. The lady that was shot stood behind. She's not shot yet, though. <laughs> in a minute. Before the gentleman could come back to hand her into the carriage, the gentleman in black came up, laid hold of her by the gown, and pulled out of his pocket two pistols. He shot the right-hand pistol at her, and the other at himself. She fell with her hand so, and she kind of describes it as like on her forehead, very much swooning style. Yes, we all just did it. <laughs> <laughs> and died before she could be got to the first lamp. I believe she died immediately, for her head hung directly. At first, I was frightened at the report of the pistol and ran away. He fired another pistol and dropped immediately. They fell feet to feet. He beat himself violently over the head with his pistols and desired somebody would kill him. And McNamara also gives us a description later. The sudden assault of the assassin, the instantaneous death of the victim, and the spattering of the poor girl's brains all over his own face. Pretty horrifying. So basically what happened there, just to kind of sum all that up, put it in modern day English, Hackman sees McNamara helping or about to help her into the coach. Basically, in order to do that, you have to take her arm, her hand, something. And so then he goes, he shoots her and then tries to die by suicide. Well, he was stalking her all night. Oh, I'm sure. From some reports. So he entered the theater several times during the evening, so he would have also witnessed all these gentlemen coming over to flirt. Now, a full night's entertainment lasted nearly five hours. Wow. So she was at this show for five hours, and he kept coming in and seeing all this stuff going on. There were like 40 songs in the song list for this opera. Yeah. <laughs> it's and then a he lot. would go and drink glasses of brandy. And then there's a story 
there's a story, I don't know how true this is, that he went into the lobby and was going to try to shoot himself there. But he wanted to make sure that she saw him. Mm-hmm. And she, he could not get close enough. And so he went outside and he was going to do it again. And he was on the steps of the theater. And he was trying to get closer to her so that she could see him do this. And he ended up pushed out of the way by a man carrying a chair of one of the theater's wealthy patrons. So I guess they would bring in fancy chairs sometimes. (laughs) I want people to just bring fancy chairs everywhere I go. So this guy carrying, like, I am imagining a chase lounge. I'm imagining a goddamn throne. Right? (laughs) I'm thinking one of those things, like, that they carried, like, the Egyptians on. Oh, maybe. Maybe. There you go. (laughs) But anyway, this guy's carrying some furniture, hits him down the steps, and so he couldn't do it there either. And then he went up to her the third time to, I guess, just do them both. Yeah. He has some interesting story. Uh, mm. We'll get there, but yeah, it's, it's fascinating the fact that he definitely was stalking her. Oh, yeah. And the fact that he kept on going in and seeing her, and you can imagine, not with very much empathy, but you can imagine that seeing these men paying attention to her was just making him more and more and more furious. Yeah, because he went out to stalk her. He sees her. He finds out that other men are talking, so he goes and drinks, and then he comes back, and men are still talking to her, so he goes and drinks some more, and then, oh, men are still talking to her. I'm going to get hammered and get these guns. I've got an idea, guys. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, when Amber says those words, run. I've got an idea. (laughs) When Amber says, I'm going to go get hammered and get these guns, I've got an idea, guys. I've got an idea is pretty bad, but that whole thing together is just, just, everybody run. Oh, yeah, all of it together, certain, (laughs) run. I have an idea. Could be a lot of fun. So if it's just I have an idea, it's probably going to be fun and only a little bit illegal. Yes, I have an idea is we should do uh, dueling scavenger hunts for our birthdays. I'm going to get these guns. I have an idea is I don't want to be a witness and have to go to court. That's that's probably for the best. (laughs) See, I think I'm down. (laughs) I know. I had a feeling. (laughs) Yeah, there's basically no hope for Martha. They take her to the Shakespeare Tavern. Oh, my heart. And... They brought in a surgeon who basically all he could do was just say, well, yes, she is in fact dead. She'd been shot in the head. Pretty much seems like it went kind of right into the forehead, went in that out under her left ear. And they found Hackman. He was not hard to find. It was was not a very, very difficult chase finding this man who just beat himself about the head with a gun. And Had he shot himself? Yes. Okay, I thought so. It tempted it missed. It grazed. Uh, grazed, yeah. How bad of a shot can one be? Well, he, he was shooting twice, though. So he shoots her right in the forehead, and he goes to put this one up, and he fires them both probably at the same time, and I don't think the second hand was up quite to his head yet. So okay. it, it just went across okay. the forehead. Also, lots of brandy. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's drunk as a skunk, too, yeah. So he's probably like, all right, shoot her and put mine. Oh, whoops, missed. Yeah, I've also heightened emotions. Maybe like everything's yeah. kind of like blurry and fuzzy, but also sharp and too bright. Like, Yeah, no, yeah. that makes sense. Or he's just a terrible shot. <laughs> I'm going that. with that. <laughs> so, so yeah, they, they found him. They questioned him a little bit. Well, he was shooting with his left hand, too. Oh, yeah, you have that. Whichever hand is his non-dominant hand, that one's more likely to miss unless he's ambidextrous. Yeah. I, I just don't, I still don't see it. I mean, you should see the difference between my nails, what I do with my left hand and what I do with my right hand. It's just your dominant hand is much smoother and more coordinated. 
So we don't know which was this dominant hand, but I mean, right is more common, I guess. So not in this room. Ha ha ha! Damn it! You're <laughs> outnumbered. Outnumbered by evil left-handed devil people. So, <laughs> actually, McNamara questioned him some. Like McNamara, the Irish attorney who had been helping the ladies into the carriage uh, until all the blood on him made him too sick. He was sick to his stomach and he just had to leave. And the magistrate questioned him. He was taken first to Tothill's prison Bridewell and then moved to Newgate where he would stay until the trial. And this news hit the Earl of Sandwich hard. He said, I could have borne anything but this. Then he went to his room, locked himself in, and just cried. And it was said he was never quite the same after that loss. But still, despite all that, this came from a newspaper report I don't entirely trust. So grain of salt and all that. It's the one that had all the dates weird. <laughs> like They're making her older and making Hackman younger. And I thought that was kind of seemed a little skeevy to try to make the age difference even more pronounced or make her seem more respectable in some way. It was just weird and I didn't like it. Yeah. And they couldn't get her name right. They kept calling her Margaret. Like an old timey. That was probably one of the friends that didn't like her though. (laughs) Well, this was one of I'm going to make her older and name her something different, that bitch. This this was a story printed. I'm not sure entirely when it was written, but it was printed over a hundred years later. And it was just one of those times when they're like on the third page of the newspaper. They're like, well, we need to fill something. So let's have old timey crime stories for a couple weeks. They gave it to an intern. Yeah, they (laughs) gave it to an intern. The newspapers reported that Sandwich sent him a letter to Hackman very soon after the murder that said, if the murderer of Miss Ray wishes to live, the man who he has most injured will use his interest to preserve his life. Basically saying, you hurt me the most but I will still try to help you to save your life. Which is, they had been kind of friends, you know? Yeah. And so there's no response yet. It'll come. Martha is laid to rest a week after her death. Lord Sandwich insists that the clothes she wore to the theater that night are to be her burial clothes as well. Which Hmm. it sort of has this feeling of preserving in amber when you can't. You know, like, he wants her to remain in some way, the way that she was maybe when he last saw her, maybe when she headed out to the theater. But obviously, you know, life ends and decay begins. That's not happening. But it does feel like that that's kind of what his feeling was there. It's, it's not going to help. <laughs> it's not going to work. <laughs> well, and he was really weird about it. So he didn't want this to hit the news. And so at the time, there were 13 newspapers in London and more than 40 in the provinces. And they actually relied on informants and spies and stuff instead of really reporters. So Sandwich had a special relationship with the Morning Post. The editor's pension came from the king's funds. Oh, that's a giant conflict of interest. Yes. <laughs> Huge. The, the biggest. It's a kingly but conflict kinda, of interest. In a weird way, I like his spin on it. I know this is going to sound weird. So he wanted it to be a highly sympathetic telling of the case in which all three were protagonists. Wow. Hmm. And victims. Hmm. So Sandwich himself was the reformed rake deprived of the love of his life. Miss Ray murdered at the hands of a young man who could not take no for an answer. (laughs) 
and Hackman. He was an upstanding gentleman, driven mad by his love. Wow, so this is the narrative that he wants pushed. Yes. It's fascinating. Everybody is a victim here. None of us are evil. We all just love and murder and all of us, it ah. <laughs> <laughs> And I feel like in that, there is this same sense of trying to save Hackman. In a weird way. But yeah, they were all friends. And there were some fun rumors. Oh boy. Oh boy. Oh, I think I know where this is going. That all three of them might have at times had special relations. Oh. I, I thought they were going to have an abnormal relationship. <laughs> that one's for our patrons. Of which Joel is one, so he has special permission to use patron stuff. So, and, and nothing proven by any means. But there were rumors that maybe they wanted to spice it up a little, bring an extra guy in on the side. And he's like, man, that was good stuff. We should get married. Because, I mean, you can't marry him, so you could marry me. And she's just like, no, because if he dies, I'm still screwed. So, no. Um, I mean, like, that was fun. But you stay over there. And I think that, in my mind, I guess, makes a little more sense. Because they did have a relationship. And I think that she was very clear as to this is only for fun because my husband has requested it. Yeah, she set boundaries. And he was like, no, let's get married. And she's like, no, love him. Fuck you. This is where we are. Like, stop it. <laughs> and that would also help explain his idea that the Earl of Sandwich would bless this union. It does make the yeah. pieces fall into place. Mm -hmm. But granted, this back then was not talked about. Oh, no. Absolutely never, ever, ever would they admit to this. And so I think that part of the reason that Sandwich was so devastated is because not only did he lose the love of his life and the mother of his children, but now he's also losing his lover. Mm-hmm. That is a fascinating idea. And like we said, all rumors. But I mean, he was in the Hellfire Club. I'm willing to bet there was some male-on-male hanky-panky that went down there. I'm not saying yeah. there was for sure. It was just a prank, though. But it's it was just a prank. Just a prank, bro. <laughs> but sometimes, I mean, Sorry, you want to get a little weird with it. You want to try new things. Maybe you like new things. Not going to talk about those new things, but some things are bigger than others. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's really fascinating. Wow. You always find the threesome stuff. Because I'm a giant pervert. <laughs> you are. This one is threesome and with an implication of butt stuff. This is like the Amber special. I know. That's, <laughs> that's why I picked it. <laughs> there it is. So, yes. Hackman is charged with the willful murder of Martha Ray. The newspapers call her a spinster. Fuck you, newspapers. You just can't win, can you? Even in death. They're like, Martha Ray, spinster. That's literally like a job description. Like, Christy Baxter, podcaster. But instead, Christy Baxter, hopeless spinster. She's been in a relationship with a man for 15 years almost, had five of his children, and somehow, somehow is still a, a spinster. Because she's not married. Because she's not married. And we all know that that's the most important thing. He pleads not guilty. And the trial starts two days after Martha's funeral. Of course, people flocked to this trial. One source said that the court itself had been informed that Martha had a secret affair with Hackman. 
and that was part of the draw for the people, but I actually read the trial transcript from the Old Bailey. There was nothing mentioned about a relationship. They didn't even discuss her personal life at all. Granted, there could be things that are stricken from the record, things yes. like that that don't make it into the official transcript, but they, they didn't put anyone on the stand to testify who is part of her personal life. They put the fruit seller. They put the lawyer. You know, those are the types of people. They put the surgeon, an apothecary. Those are the witnesses, of which there were six. The prosecution, it, it, it's obviously pretty straightforward if you just have six witnesses you're examining. And Mary Anderson said in the cross-examination with the, the defense, that she saw Hackman pull the pistols out. And it's kind of weird the way they do this. The question. You say Mr. Hackman pulled two pistols out of his pocket. Do you mean he pulled them both out of one pocket with one hand? I mean, how would you? They're, they're 18th century pistols. Yeah, they're probably pretty big. Yeah, how big are his hands? You can't, there's no... Maybe there's a reason they asked him to join in, guys. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. Those but... are some big hands. <laughs> She answered, he pulled them out of different pockets with different hands, and they went off just so. And then she clapped her hands to imitate two shots. Exactly. And so only two of the six called to testify were even cross-examined by the defense. And then Hackman presents his side. Now, I think, I'm, I'm listening to an audiobook about uh, death and murder in the Victorian age, which is a little bit after this. This is more Georgian times. But... I think, if I remember what I listened to last night, that during this time period, you could only have defense counsel for the purpose of giving you legal advice. So hmm. they might be able to cross-examine or they might just tell you what questions to ask and you cross-examine the witnesses. And then you have a statement that they might help you write or just write for you. Nobody's going to know. <laughs> and what are they going to Google it? <laughs> and then you give that statement in court and that's basically putting on your defense. That's it. And you're not even allowed to know what the prosecution knows. So there's no discovery. You're walking in there just completely blind. And yeah, so that's basically how this goes. Also, an interesting thing that they mentioned that answered a question I've had about British trials during this general time period. The trial would go on until the jury said, all right, that's enough for today. So these trials would start at like 8 a.m. And at 9 p.m., the jury would finally be like, okay tired. We really wanted to finish this up today, but I do not think we can manage the 10 minutes of deliberation with this amount of energy. I am flagging. So yeah, it was so weird. Now I'm not a hundred percent sure that this was the standard during this exact time period, because like I said, that's the, the 19th century Victorian times, but I doubt that legal processes moved backwards in a hundred years, you know? They could have, though. You they never, you have, never but... know. I mean, we're in the middle of that right now, Texas. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> he presents his side. He said he wouldn't have bothered everyone with this trial, except that he thought pleading guilty and thus getting an automatic death sentence, quote, was in some measure being accessory to a second peril of my life. So basically, he, he's saying, if I let you just sentence me to death because I pled guilty then I'm an accessory to my own murder. And I'm like, but you were going to take your own life. So how that, then it's what, being an accessory is at least a little, it, it's, all, it's, all, it's all tangled and I don't get it. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. So it's just a little contradictory. He states that, quote, 
The will to destroy her who was ever dearer to me than life was never mine till a momentary frenzy overcame me and induced me to commit the deed I now deplore. The letter, that's his suicide note, which I meant for my brother-in-law after my decease, will have its due weight as to this point with good men. So he's basically using the letter kind of as his defense that this was not premeditated. He didn't mean to do it until the last second when he went into a frenzy, which, by the way, is spelled with a P-H. It's the first time I've seen that. It's just new. So. Well, his letter was, there are so many misspellings, like it hurts my head. Oh, luckily the versions that I saw were all uh, fixed, thank God. Oh, okay. So, and they entered it into evidence. When this reaches you, I shall be no more, but do not let my unhappy fate distress you too much. I have strove against it as long as possible but it now overpowers me. You well know where my affections were placed, my having by some means or other lost hers, an idea which I could not support, has driven me to madness. The world will condemn me, but your good heart will pity me. God bless you, my dear Fred. Would I had a sum to leave you to convince you of my great regard, you was my only friend. And then he's like, by the way, just, just a little side note. I owe a dude 100 pounds, and I forgot to tell you about that earlier. Oops, my bad. Just sell my books and shit, and that should cover it. Yeah, that's about uh, 12,000 uh, US dollars today. <laughs> so he's like, yeah, just sell my books. Surely I. It's a, a lot of books. Yeah, a soldier turned reverend will have enough books to cover $12,000. Have fun with that. And by the way, the National Archives currency converters, which I wish I had found when I was freaking out about shillings, <laughs> now I know at least, though, tells me that at the time, you could buy 20 cows with that. Oh. Or if you don't need cows, 666 days of wages for a skilled tradesman. Wow. Yeah. I was not able to find the love letter he wrote to her anywhere. Did you see that anywhere? Okay. So, two things. I, I would like to point out the end of this letter to oh, Frederick. Sure. May heaven protect my beloved woman and forgive this act which alone could relieve me from a world of misery I have long endured. He, I don't think he actually did mean to kill her because the end of the letter was, may heaven protect my woman. I know. I think it was at the very least in the back of its head. It may not have been something he consciously knew. No, I think that he was planning to because how often do you need two guns to kill yourself? I mean, if you miss once. Well, yeah, that's why I said how often. Which is exactly what he did. <laughs> Maybe yeah. he knows he's a bad shot. <laughs> but here's the thing. So I had that the second letter w was not what you had. I had that the second letter in his pocket was her last rejection. Interesting. Which is okay. why they didn't put it in, because it wasn't something he wrote. And they left it out because it was her rejection of marriage. Wow. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. All right. It's understandable how that could get mixed up over the centuries. Yeah. A love letter to her, a not-so-love letter to him. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the letter in his pocket, if he was planning on actually dying by suicide, would be his explanation to the world. Once they see what's in my pockets, they'll understand. You know, a, a woman said no to me. Can't have that. I love her so. She does not love me. Yeah, it's that line, my having by some other means or other lost her affections, an idea which I could not support. He just cannot handle the idea. Just can't get behind it. Can't get behind it, yeah. So his defense does the usual, tries to say he's insane, because obviously this was not premeditated. and Totally was. Yeah, yeah. And also, let's say, okay, 
He only planned to take his own life, but he deliberately wanted to do it in front of her. He wanted to be a foot away from her when he did that violent act upon himself. He wants to mess up her mind. He wants to mm -hmm. make her yeah. live with that forever. That's also a shitty thing. <laughs> like, not to mention all the bystanders around this crowded theater who are also going to be traumatized. So he is definitely at no point in this thinking of anyone but himself. And to do that to her, to want to do that to her, is not, oh, poor me, I'm so sad. It is vindictive. It is, but, but, and, and I understand the whole premeditation thing. This was day of. This was all day of. Yeah. He went and got the guns day of, but he was drinking and he kept going in and seeing all these men talk and flirt with her. And I think he just kept getting drunker and drunker and was like, fuck it all. I don't know how premeditated it was and I don't know what kind of mindset he was in because this was all one day. The public was really sympathetic with him at trial to the extent that some considered him the true victim, which could have been very much influenced, as Amber said, by the, the newspapers being influenced by the Earl. Newspapers called him very genteelly made and of a most polite address. And he would get similar treatment in literature in the centuries after. Despite all that, he's found guilty after pretty much no deliberation and sentenced to death by hanging. Then, he sends a reply to Sandwich's letter. From the condemned cell at Newgate. The murderer of her whom he preferred to life suspects the hands from which he has just received such an offer as he neither desires nor deserves. His wishes are for death, not for life. One wish he has. Could he be pardoned in this world by the man he has most injured? Oh, my Lord, when I meet her in another world, enable me to tell her if departed spirits are not ignorant of earthly things, that you forgive us both, that you will be a father to her dear infants. J.H. At the very least, there was a strong friendship. But, yeah. Brown he, chicken, he, brown cow. He's basically saying, yeah, I don't want your help. I don't want to live. Uh, having, having done this, uh, I just want to die. And uh, I hope I see her in heaven. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to go to heaven. <laughs> It's kind of implied there. This guy's been all over the place with what he desires. Because at one point he does like, nope, not pleading guilty, don't want to die. Mm-hmm, yeah. And now he's like, eh, I don't want you to help me, I want to die. Yeah. He is all, you're very right about that. He's all over the place. It's hard to pin down. Three days after the verdict, he's taken to Tyburn, and it's said that he's deeply affected on the trip to the gallows. And one later account said that he'd seen a friend hanged for counterfeiting only two years before. He'd actually gone to be by his friend's side for the hanging. And he said the very day he saw it in a letter to Martha that it was the last execution he would ever witness. Yeah, this would have still been the time during public executions. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It was, it was, a, it was a public spectacle. Yeah. In fact, that Victorian murder book, there's, there's a whole bunch about that. Not only that, but they were doing ripped from the headlines <laughs> long before Law and Order was doing yeah. it on the stage and sometimes before there had even been a trial, which feels a little unfair. Now, uh, in later years, the newspapers would tell us that Sandwich survived another 13 years. And during that time, he always made sure that Martha's children were taken care of. Weren't Martha's children his children? Well, their children. Yeah, their children together. But in the eyes of the world, they're her 
illegitimate uh, okay. children. Yeah. Did you have a thing, Amber? Uh, yeah, so one of their sons actually died. So he didn't take maybe very good care of them, but I mean, he did. I mean, of. it ha- it happened. We really can't blame him. It, it happened like one out of four times. <laughs> but the other three, he made sure they had opportunities. Um, the Their daughter actually uh, grew up to marry an admiral. Ooh. Which is fancy. And there was his son, Basil Montague, who was born in 1770. He would go on to make a bit of a name for himself as a jurist, barrister, and philanthropist. Somehow, and I couldn't figure this out, he lost his inheritance from his father when it came down the pike. He ended up going to read for the bar to become a barrister because he'd, quote, by a technical flaw, lost the portion intended for him by his father, end quote. That's a curious phrasing, and I don't know exactly what happened, but he seems like a pretty good guy. He actually was a founding member of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Hmm. Which, ironically, was founded at a meeting at Old Slaughter's Coffee House. Oh. (laughs) And not very far at all from where his mother was murdered. So, yeah. I know, right? It feels wrong. It feels almost like they're doing this on purpose. Nobody can fault us. We're doing a very good thing. We're just doing it in a very inappropriately named place. Meet you at Old Slaughter's. (laughs) Let's go down to Ye Old Euthanasia's Tavern. (laughs) God. And uh, in addition to the sandwich, sandwich, as we have, there are the Sandwich Islands. He used his influence to help Captain James Cook, famed explorer, get to see the king. He helped Cook get set up for expeditions and all that. And so Cook named the Sandwich Islands, which we now know as Hawaii, after Sandwich, as well as islands in several other places. There are two Montague Islands and another South Sandwich Island, because why not just name things the same thing? I mean, that was their policy. Everybody was either Sarah, Elizabeth, or Mary, or Martha. So, I mean, and then in the... The town of Sandwich, there's the annual Sandwich Festival. Um, and that town isn't actually named after him. It, maybe his family name comes from the town. I'm not 100% sure. But the town's name means marketplace on sandy soil. Hmm. And what do they do at the Sandwich Festival? I was very confused because I, I glanced over the page, but I was time was ticking down. I was running out of time. Okay. But they had a sort of a... A poster, an advertising poster that had a sort of collage style where it had blocks with pictures in them. And then in between lines of blocks with pictures, there would be words. And in the very top upper left block, the very first thing you see is a pizza. Okay, that's not a sandwich, but it's still good. I know, I know. Maybe they're expanding. Pizza is good. You're not wrong. Yeah. Pizza's great. And there was finally a book written in 1780, Love and Madness, A Story Too True, and a series of letters between parties whose names would perhaps be mentioned were they less known or lamented. Oh my god, they're so dramatic even in the titles. There were fictionalized letters that basically were supposed to be between the various parties involved here, and uh, a lot of people believed they were real. It was kind of like Blair Witch but in a book with a really uh, eye-rollingly dramatic title. And long. And long, very long title. It's a lot of words. But I had fun reading it, I gotta tell you. Every century, kind of, they would rewrite this story, though, to be completely different, based on what was going on with the history. So you have those crazy stories, and then you have other stories where everybody was awful, or there was one story where the Earl of Sandwich was an abusive asshole, and it's all his fault. Other stories where Ray was just a slut and, and brought them both into her tangled web. So 
it would really get rewritten every few decades based on what was just going on around history and what kind of story you wanted to throw out there, almost like a don't do this, it'll be like the boy who cried wolf. Yeah, it can be molded and shaped to fit any agenda. It can fit the agenda of we hate rich noble people. It can fit the agenda of we hate women, they're all sluts. It can fit the agenda of we hate soldiers or we, you know, hate mental illness or, you know, we hate middle class. We hate the clergy. We hate the clergy. There you go. Whatever agenda you want to push against particular portions of society, whoever's downtrodden at the moment, basically, or whoever you're trying to pull down, you can make it fit. It's amazing in that way. It is. It is. That is fascinating. So, all right. Is that all, or do you have anything else? I have a little tidbit. Okay. So, 41 years after her death, Martha's body was discovered by workmen under a pew in a church. And they placed her in a vault in the chancel until 1924. Now, apparently, the body had been embalmed and was perfectly preserved, which kind of reminded me of our extra extra a little bit as to why the body would be perfectly preserved. But I'm just going to leave that there. You guys should be Patreons. (laughs) And in 1928, one of Sandwich's descendants put up a tombstone for Martha at the church that can be seen today. Oh, wow. That's so nice. It's nice to know that you can be remembered long after, although it it sometimes does take a dying horribly and young. Yeah, (laughs) but, like, they just, like, shoved her under a pew at the church, and then somebody's like, oh, look, she's still perfect. Um, let's... Put her somewhere else, I guess. I'm imagining they had some sort of like vaults in the floor of the church or some sort of burial Maybe. structure that they used. Yeah, she was just, they just, just shoved there. her under there, under the pew, not <laughs> oh, buried look, or anything. We found this thing. Every- she was there for like, you know, a hundred years or whatever, and then some of the workmen were like, hmm, anyone ever noticed this before? 41 years and perfectly preserved. That's incredible. I know it's not, uh, probably not. The Catholic Church was probably the Church of England. I don't know for sure, but I'm just going to go ahead and just make it Catholic in my head so that every time there's a service and people have to do the stand, sit, kneel, mm-hmm. <laughs> whenever somebody is like on top of her body, they're like, God, can we just move her legs? Just, it's really awkward, okay? And cold. So that was that She's was... not bendy anymore. Yeah. <laughs> God, Mom, just can we sit in a different place just once? Yes, I know this is our pew, and it's like you know special. We need and a different pew, Mom. Ugh. Would you ever wonder why no one else wants to sit here? Yeah, come on, think about it, Mom. I'm She's sure you right could there. Put the pieces together, literally the pieces. No, she, she was she was she was preserved. There were no pieces. All right, well, okay. That was Martha Ray and the Earl of Sandwich. In addition to maybe we solved Robert the Doll. Yeah. Did a lot of things today. Did a lot of things today. Feeling very accomplished. So, uh, yeah. All the bullshit, of course. There's our Patreon that we have mentioned. Our Amazon wish list is in the show notes. You can buy us a book. We'll do that book as a case and give you credit. You can also uh, get a shout-out by... Uh, you, you can either join the Patreon at the $1 level if you would like, and then you get the shout-out. Or you can do uh, PayPal and use our email, oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. You can also use that email to contact us or our social media if you have any uh, comments, if you have any case suggestions, if you just want to say hi. Uh, those are all things you can do. And we have our merch over on Redbubble. The new logo is in the works. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's just a little ways away. And then we'll have new t-shirts with a new logo on them. So yeah, there's all that stuff. 
if I have any more bullshit, um, it's my my need to pee is definitely taking precedence. So uh, what are we all doing this week? I'm going to pee in like five seconds. Gotcha, um, gotcha. That's, yeah. that's uh, a good good plan. I'm in the line for the bathroom. Okay, yeah. Uh, I, I also am going to be in that line. Uh, so yeah, that and we're also looking around for the stray kittens that are around our house. So uh, <laughs> I'm excited and nervous and I just hope that they're okay. So yeah, that's uh, that's our everything. Wow, that was a quick wrap up. <laughs> yeah, that was. We all got to pee. It's amazing what the bladder can do. So thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to our filthy words. We hope you enjoyed this show, and we hope you have a fantastic weekend. Bye. 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 He went and got himself a, a deaconship? Yes, a deaconship. No. A vicar? A rectorship. <laughs> a rector. Damn near killed her. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. No. No.